family of business musicians are probably the number one reason why families do not transition their business to the next generation or a successful transition to a third party. This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and we're doing a deep dive continuation with Sean Hutchinson and Barry Goodman, co-founders and partners with SVA Value Accelerators. This is a continuation of the SVA podcast. We're going to dig deeper in this complex topic. We're going to talk about the challenges and perils of transition and the issues facing families in businesses. Sean, if you would, let's recap where this segment fits in. So here's the interesting thing about family-owned business in our value accelerator. If you think about our seven value accelerator sprints as vertical columns, family-owned business is the horizontal issue that cuts across all of them. So it's a very different animal when you're in a multi-generational family business. It's great that we have on our team an expert in this area who is Barry. He's got advanced certifications in counseling family-owned businesses. So we think of this as a resource that when we are working with a family-owned business, Barry's expertise comes to bear. And it's across all of the sprints in the Value Accelerator, not just one. It's a constant issue when you are dealing with families. Barry, why are the family-owned businesses so different than perhaps other businesses? Well, I believe you need to look at, uh, imagine a Venn diagram where you have three circles and Parts of the circle, they intersect and other parts do not. And this is really the family business system. And you have one circle, it talks about ownership, and another circle is family, and the third circle is the business, the management of the business. And you could have people that are members of the family that are not involved in the business, members of the family that are involved in the business. You can have members of the family who own shares, but have no participation whatsoever. You can have family employees that are employed that are not related by blood or marriage. So you have all these different conflicts going on, different needs, different objectives of each of these different parties. And then as generations move from first to second to third along with the history of the business, you put a circle, another circle around that, and that's called the Cousin Consortium. So there really is a, it's no wonder why this is a very confusing area and an area where there could be conflict without intending to have conflict because of the net different needs, wants, and objectives of each of the individual family members or non-family members. That's the pool that you're navigating in. Right. <laughs> right. It's a big pool and it could get a little tenuous at times. In looking at the family business space, and you were kind enough to provide a bunch of material for me to review before the podcast, when you walk into a business situation where you're working on a value acceleration, what is that initial meeting or interaction with that business and or family-owned business look like? Well, it's really to understand what's going on in the business and what's going on in the family. And it goes to our central theme that we have at SVA is we believe that transition-ready businesses are more valuable. So it really is, it's, the discussion is, to, is around the concept and the idea of transition readiness. And transition readiness consists of basically three things that we talk about. One is operational excellence. Two is financial, and three is, is that business 
being treated as a investment for the family or for the business owner. So the concepts around how we treat a family business is really different, just that we need to be recognized that there are different goals and objectives that all need to be addressed with each of these different categories. I think that last point of the three that you talked about, Barry, in terms of transition readiness and what does it mean, operational excellence, financial efficiencies, kind of apply across the board, I think, in all businesses, regardless of whether you're a family-owned business or not. But when you get down to that, look at your business through the eyes of an investor, dispassionately, for instance. It's harder, I think, in family-owned businesses, multi-generational potentially, with all of the competing interests or just different perspectives of family members to actually achieve that dispassionate position that allows you to look at it very clear-eyed, right? So every owner is emotional, regardless of whether they're family owner or not. Every owner is somewhat emotional about their business. It's their baby, right? They've invested a lot of their lifetime in it. When you throw the family dynamics into the picture, that becomes even more difficult to achieve. And so, you know, the sort of the emotional currents that are running through the business in and out constantly, maybe old, old conflicts that are rearing their head again. It's amazing what can come up in these situations. An investor's perspective is certainly, it's more difficult to settle into that viewpoint. It is more difficult, and it also relates to the operational excellence of the business. Because business which is not family-owned would look for the best person they possibly can to fill the position that they may have within the company. So the whole idea of two aspects. One, bringing in a family member into the business just because they're family or are they the best person for that position versus bringing in an outsider? And an outsider working in a family business has its own challenges, both for the employee and for the business and for the family. So that needs to be reconciled, and that ties directly into looking at it as a dispassionate investor. That really creates a lot of, uh, a lot of conflict, a lot of discussion within families of politicians. In looking at it, just in some of my interactions with families, you've got the patriarch, perhaps, of the greatest generation or the baby boom generation. And then you may have the next generation that has been in the business for a while, working their way up, starting to develop and demonstrating core competencies. Then you have the millennial generation that's behind that, not to mention the spouses that might be involved along the way. And I think about the various viewpoints and aspirations of those various members. And the patriarch is still present, or some member of the family is present, and they're still making a living out of the business. You've got the next generation that's functionally operating the business, perhaps, that has their own aspirations and input from their spouses. And then you have them thinking about maybe can they take and pass the business at some point to these young kids that maybe are just starting like they did. For you, when you see come into that organization, and we talk about de-risking, what do you do to start trying to address the perhaps known landmines in that field? Well, we really need to drill down and understand what is in the mind of the patriarch. You know, what really is, you know, what are they looking to do? What's next for them? It's, you know, we talk often about three legs of the stool. 
what is that life after business for the matriarch or matriarch within that family? And how are they instilling their values and their goals and their mission in that second and then possibly that third generation? You often see businesses, family businesses, only lasting till that third generation. And that goes to that patriarch who's the one that started that business from the trunk of his car, his garage, and then going to that, bringing in that next generation, which is continuing the values. And that third generation may not have an interest or maybe technology has changed, but it really, it, understanding the goals and objectives and understanding the values of the family and how they fit in with the business because the business can't just operate as a separate unit. They are intertwined, especially in a family situation. Yeah. We always say that family issues will trump business issues every time. So if you go into these situations and you think, you know, this is going to be like anything else, there's going to be a certain, there are going to be certain, I don't want to call them sort of rational dimensions to adjust the business issues. Not to say that the family issues are irrational, but they add a dimension to the environment which should not be ignored, cannot be ignored. Because as an advisor, if you miss it, and you're not really doing a good job as an advisor, you're just kind of wiping away this very important aspect. I do agree with Barry, and I think one of the things that you were getting at, Bob, were the shadows, if you will, that can be quite long in a family business. Mm -hmm. So the, the shadow that a patriarch or a matriarch casts over, especially if they're a first-generation founder generation of the business, they have an emotional investment in that entrepreneurial venture that the following generations will not have. Let's just, let's just acknowledge that right from the beginning. However, as Barry was pointing out, the values of the family are the things that are actually going to carry it forward because the business situations will change. The question is, how good is the family at managing through that? How much of that knowledge and wisdom have they been able to transfer generation to generation? And how have they done it? How has it gone? How good was the plan for that kind of mobility of the values across multiple generations? Because it becomes more fragile as you move away from the founding point. It's just more distant. So naturally, it's going to become less connected. And Sean, you're absolutely right. If you study families that have are in their fifth, sixth, or seventh, or eighth generation. And there are a number of those families that are still around, or those businesses that are still in existence. They are successful because they've been able to discuss their values, discuss their mission, and really have you know, mission and vision and values, not only within the business, but within the family. And the two must be in alignment with each other in order for that family and that business to succeed from generation to generation. And it's always fascinating to me to read and learn about how they have succeeded for so many generations, when really the statistics show that only 4% will last into that fourth generation and beyond. Yeah, the failure rate is high. failure rate is high. And also to recognize that with the business that you that you entered into when you were in your first generation may not be that same business that you have in that second or third or fourth generation for a number of reasons. It could be technology. It could be change of interest. It could be a number of different things. Right. A family may have somebody who wants to enter into the business 
and somebody in the family that does not want to enter into the business, but they want to go into a different business. That's a very interesting point, because I think in the progression, you start with family-owned business, right? That's what you'd call it, family-owned business. But at some point along the way, you actually become what we would call a business-owning family. Correct. That's a subtle but very important shift, where you might have multiple ventures going on within the family ecosystem. You may have become a more passive owner in your own business, but you're still a business-owning family. And I think if they start to see themselves that way, it changes the conversation. Change the conversation totally, and as you, it also reduces the risk. Mm-hmm. You know, investments are about diversification, so why not diversify your business interests and engage those family members who have an interest in technology with the millennials, for instance, mm-hmm. or the younger generations? They have an interest in technology and so a knowledge of it. Typically, yeah, don't fight that. Mm-hmm. And really look at developing, like you said, Sean, a family, business-owning family. You know, for the let's say I'm that business owner, and we're going to pretend I'm the patriarch. And I'm going like, you know, I've got issues facing me. There's the sibling rivalry that's been there since day two. You know, there's the competing interests and competencies. But I want to create a mechanism where my method mechanism or some kind of go-forward steps where my children are still friends after I pass, the business endures, and there's some mechanism that the children get to deploy or exploit their particular skill sets. One may be a CEO, one may be a different kind of business. What would you recommend steps that a patriarch could take or matriarch could take, start trying to get congruency in the family toward preserving what they've done? Well, you're seeing a lot of this concept in Europe is really where it started, but it's also uh, starting in the, it's really, it's not in its infancy, but more and more families are forming, which you might call family offices, where really they are looking at the entire business and the entire ownership of the family, but it's starting around the goals and values and mission of the family. And that is then going into the family office where they can foster this entrepreneurship within the family and have different family members involved in different business interests. And yes, you have conflicts, but among family members, it's there. But if you implement also a governance within the family, as you do within the business, that helps provide a non-legal way of mitigating some of these conflicts and giving a mechanism of how conflicts are resolved. And it really develops a culture. If you develop a culture within the family to resolve conflicts, find common ground, and then expand on that common ground to, to resolve issues as a family. We can't be so blind to the fact that some conflicts will never be resolved. But at least if you can come together around something, you are then able to operate family interests, but also act as a as a family and at least get together on Thanksgiving, but maybe on <laughs> sides of the table. <laughs> right, right. I think there are a couple of other things that you could think about as a family that anticipates multi-generational ownership or creating an entrepreneurial culture that may spawn multiple ventures. Dennis Jaffe, who's really well-known and respected in the area of family-owned business, did a study on 100-year 
family enterprises, meaning that they had been there at least three, four, five generations into business and they had made these tricky transitions each time, keeping it together. And many of the things that Barry said were things that they did early, creating family council, constitution, figuring out what matters together, figuring out how to make those tough decisions. Similar to what we talked about in our decision dynamics podcast, where we were applying it within a business, some of these same principles have to apply within the family itself. But the sixth generation family, what Dennis was looking for in his study, are there common characteristics? Are the things that are happening in these multi-generational hundred-year business families that are common across the generations? And he found that the families that existed, their businesses made it to the sixth generation, which is so rare, so rare. They had done two things by the second generation. They had hired professional outside management, and they had a board of directors with outside independent directors. So right from the beginning, the family had made the, op- had made the ch- choice, really it was a choice, to implement professional best practices for operational excellence and governance that carried the business forward beyond where the family could probably carry it if they were doing it themselves. So I was fascinated by that. It was two factors that we knew made a difference, but we didn't actually know that it was going to sort out to be the two things that the sixth generation families had done by the time they made their first transition of ownership. Okay. There are families, there are businesses that have done exactly that. Mm -hmm. Basically there is in, in a couple, in one business I can think of, they have no family members involved in the business whatsoever. Mm-hmm. From the board level down to the guy who runs the, you know, the punch press. Yeah. Members, it's treated truly as an investment, and they have brought in professional management, and also they have a board of directors. Family gathers, however, around philanthropy. I'm finding this more and more that families that are in their fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth generation are really around philanthropy or some other interest that they can do together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a point in any business, no matter who the owners are, whether it's a business owning family or an individual or partnership or management, where they have to make a decision about letting go, where they have to know their limits and understand that, hey, we've taken it this far and maybe it is the right thing to take it further as a family. Maybe we've got a talent Maybe we've got the desire to move it forward across generations. But if you're really a multi-generational thinking business family, then you're going to say, this is not just about getting to the next generation. It's about moving as a family in a multi-generational strategy well beyond. And so all these conversations are happening early. I would like to see them happening early in the process rather than having to have them while you're trying to make an ownership transition. Because the chances of failure, just going from one to two, founding generation to second generation, are very high. The statistics are not good. I think it's pretty I – mean, I don't see a whole lot of evidence, Barry. I don't know about you. I don't see a whole lot of evidence that being a family business necessarily guarantees you a better success rate on subsequent generational transfers. Really, I mean, the failure rate for non-family businesses and family businesses is pretty darn close. 
I actually believe that it's more difficult for a family-owned business to get to that next level, to get to that mm. next generation. Mm. And one of the things that was uh, that documents this is Waterhouse Coopers did a study. They do a study every two years of family-owned businesses throughout the world. And they ask three questions. question is, are you going to transition the business to the next generation, business and management? Two, are you going to transition just the, are you going to transition ownership and bring in professional management, or are you going to prepare the company for sale? And there has been a spike in preparing the company for sale, Mm. or they just don't know what they're going to do. There's two things in that third category. They don't know what they're going to do, and two, they are going to prepare it for sale. And there's been a spike that's almost doubled. 2014 to 16 to 18. Actually, it's fascinating to see that change. So are you saying that where family businesses used to prefer transferring intergenerationally, now it's clear that there's a movement away from that towards we're going to sell it to an outside party? Yes. Okay. What's driving that? Did Pricewaterhouse talk about it? They talked about that it was a lot of the issues of that new generation wanting to go into other types of businesses. Mm. So it's mm. not that the family is getting out of being a business-owning family, which is what we talked about earlier. It's the business itself. And you're bringing into the business, at some point in time, you need to bring into the business outside management, which is a very difficult thing to do, which I talked about. But two, family grows. You have different financial needs that are a drain on the business. Because mm-hmm. the family grows at a faster rate than the business. And the business can't keep up growth of the family. So the, those needs of new family members really put that pressure on the business. So you take dividends, for instance. If you have somebody who is not involved in the business but owns the shares in the business, their goal and objective is they want money. They want some cash flow. If you have another family member who mm-hmm. is in the business that also has ownership, their goal is to keep money in the business to grow the business. So if you keep looking at the Venn diagram and seeing and analyzing what all the needs are of all these people and the pressures that are placed on the business, it's no wonder that business, first of all, that there's conflict. Second of all, that family businesses really have a difficult time transitioning. Is because of the, the needs of the growing family. Yeah, the different needs. Literally more mouths to feed. More mouths to feed. And the, a lot of families look at that business and they brought their, you know, that next generation up to depend on that business. So what a lot of owners, a lot of families are doing is they're also requiring their family members to get jobs outside of the business and have requirements that allow them to come into the business Mm -hmm. that are no different than if they went to a third party to hire a third party to come in and work in the business. That's a good example of looking at your business through the eyes of an investor. How would a non-family business handle this to sort of take the family out of the picture, so to speak? Right. The Goya family, you guys probably, and I'm assuming our listeners have probably heard of Goya Foods. It's a big family. It's a it was a, a Cuban family that fled Cuba. They're now based in Puerto Rico, but it, it's a sizable business. 
and they have very structured rules, if you will, and pathways for subsequent generations, new generations to actually participate in the business. And they put them through the paces. As Barry said, you have to go get an education. You have to get an education. If you want to be in the executive ranks, you got to have an MBA or some kind of an advanced degree. That Now, I will say this. They put money behind this process. It's not like, hey, go off and get your MBA and come back and talk to us. They have enough wealth that they're able to actually support this pathway for their children. But there is no guarantee. They're not going to make a job for a family member just because they're family. They're not going to put another box on the organizational chart. Either the job is open or is it isn't open. It could be filled by a family member or filled by a non-family member, and they'll go through the interview process. And by the time they get into the executive ranks, they need to have worked through the ranks of the company so that they can better understand the way the business actually operates. And that is what they call entry and exit provisions of the family constitution. Hmm. Family, the, the, the family constitution is the document which bridges the family to the business and sets up those entry and exit provisions into the business. And the business knows what their labor pool is. Yeah. Because, you know, we're in a situation now where the labor isn't there. So the family only has so many bodies, okay, so many minds to utilize, like the Goya family, to be able to grow that business. So it, it's really looking at strategically and how are we going to grow the business and what are the resources we have within the family and what do we need from the outside? You know, you were talking about instituting the family constitution, and I think about that first, second generation transition and the will of the patriarch to get this in place. And then the potential drawbacks and challenges of the next generation looking at having to basically behave according to constitutional statements, I guess. How do you see that when you call a family meeting? How do you institute some type of process like that in a structured manner? It's not an easy process to start, okay? And the family needs to be willing and have the vision to have that business want to be in the family for generations to come. And usually I have seen it not within that first generation, but more so in that second generation that wants to have that business within the family for the third and fourth generation. So it really it requires a special type of family that really has that vision to say, I want my children and grandchildren to have the benefits of this business. I see that in ag operations where they're accumulating ground through the generations. And there's the typical angst that goes on within the family. What types of mechanisms do you see commonly used to arbitrate disputes within the family? There's the family council uh, that can organize this, uh, that can reconcile disputes. The family constitution gives you the methodology in which to do that. And oftentimes, Outside mediators can be brought in depending upon the nature of that conflict. But the provisions of the Constitution is the written document. But you also, within the family council, have mechanisms in place that help you reconcile these disputes or conflicts within the family. Well, one thing I need to make sure that I don't forget 
is for the folks who are going like, I need to reach out to you guys. How do they find you all on social media? Well, we're on LinkedIn and our website, it's buildvaluetoday.com. And they can always email one of us by looking at our website and getting our respective email addresses. Right. We have a company LinkedIn page. You can follow us. We have individual LinkedIn pages, Barry Goodman, Sean Hutchinson, and the other folks in our, in our firm. Great way to connect. We always love to hear from business owners and talk with business owners because we're, we're uh, always fascinated by the story and connection with our clients is a really important thing for us. Well, one of the things that we talked about mm-hmm. previously for the families that are going, you know, we need to work both on the family business and in the business itself to get things sorted out. You guys have something coming up at the first of the year, I believe. We're starting a new exciting program called the Ready for Next Academy, online education for owners, live education for owners. Barry has been developing mastermind groups, which are peer-driven groups of 10 owners working together over the course of a year, helping one another solve problems. That's expert facilitated, of course, in a very structured program that follows our value accelerator, those seven sprints along with many other activities. So we're glad to get those things off the ground and introduce them to the, to the owner community. You know, tools at hand, and, you know, and Barry, when you think about mastermind groups, what would you think about family-owned businesses versus non-family-owned businesses in a mastermind group? Would there be a benefit for segregating or not? I think that certain situations, certain families would benefit from being in a family-only mastermind group because they do have common interests. They do have common problems. But on the other hand, they will also benefit from a non-family situation because if they are looking to continue their business to generation to generation, it gives them a a good idea as to how non-family businesses are organized and how they operate because a little bit of a paradigm shift for families to look at some non-family situation. You know, I would see that as a great resource for finding members to be outside folks on your board. If oh, you... absolutely. And there's other organizations that are specifically set up to provide board members, mm-hmm. uh, both mm-hmm. on a national and on a local level. Yeah. I'm a member of the Private Directors Association, and it is an association specifically set up to provide board members to both family and non-family company. And there's a progression. I mean, a lot of families, when they get into implementing a board, which is the best practice, they may not want to have an outsider involved immediately. They may not understand the benefits of this. So I usually recommend that they start with an advisory board, Mm -hmm. which is a non-fiduciary board, and they can get the value of bringing in third parties, and we're not talking about them bringing in you know, their buddies from the country club. They need to bring in people that really can demonstrate in the ability and the willingness to provide additional value. And once they see that and understand that value is there, they are then more inclined to look at a formal fiduciary board with outside board members that can add real value and bring you know, that to the company. And a lot of the responses that I have gotten over the years is, you know, this is the cheapest consultant I can ever hire, okay, is an advisory board or the board of directors. 
It brings up an interesting point. So we talked about bringing in outside management. We talked about bringing in, ultimately, as a best practice, a true board of directors with fiduciary responsibility oversight for the company, right? And there's a lot of authority that comes with that, a lot of risk for board members as well. They need to be aware. But often what comes with those decisions is a need to make room in the equity structure for non-family members. So in most cases, let's imagine it's a $100 million family business. And probably by the time you get to that point, you've hired outside, you've hired professional management, you should be operating with the board well before that. But there aren't a whole lot of executives who are, I think, true CEO types that will come into a business without having some kind of equity participation. That doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be the same type of equity as the family's equity. It could be phantom equity or something like that, at least in the beginning. But they are going to want to have some ownership in the company. It's often the case for board members, too. I sit on boards and I have equity options in those companies. So now you're into a situation where the family needs to think about proactively, how are they going to structure the equity in their company to allow for that? And how are they going to get comfortable with it? Now, I'll just make one point here. And we talk about this often in our firm. If you are operating as an S corporation, you have very little flexibility on that front. And the best you're going to be able to do, most likely, because you only have one class of stock to work with, voting and non-voting, yes, but one class of stock with economic rights, you don't have very much flexibility to bring in other equity partners at another non-founder level. And most of the businesses in the baby boomer category are going to be operating as S-Corps, not LLCs, where you have a lot more flexibility. They're usually not operating as C-Corps, although we do see it. And we may see more of it now that the tax rates in the United States have adjusted on corporate tax. There could be benefits. It's really complex. So thinking proactively about that, what are we going to have to do in order to allow for that is important. Barry's absolutely right on the advisory board. I think that's a great place to start because you kind of get to test your metal a little bit, right? Dip your toe in, find out what that feels like. But when the transition comes from advisory to true governance, there is a different. It is related, but it's a different animal. And here's my opinion. A bad board, badly run, badly selected, is a, a millstone around the neck of the company and could do a huge amount of damage. So you need to know how to run a board. And you need to understand the implications of running a board badly versus well. I think a lot of owners keep themselves in the chairperson's position. In many cases, that's okay. But the chairperson has specific responsibilities and authority within a board, which are important to know how to wield effectively and fairly. So I've seen companies make the mistake that, hey, it's an advisory board. Now all we're going to do is formalize it. And we're going to continue operating as an advisory board without really stepping up our game. And I think that's a really serious mistake. I think you need to look at the company, the board, the family all together. You can't just look at one piece without considering the vision, mission, goals, and objectives of all the parties and handling it with a plan to be successful to that next to that next generation of voters. Now, I have seen situations where a board has been, like you said, Sean, has been disastrous to the company and to the family and almost to the point of destroying the business. So this is a big decision to make in bringing in 
board, but accelerate value tremendously. And but it's the business. The families are very hesitant because they have a stranger, they have a third party that's not involved in their business. It's understandable. And to yeah. your point, the compensation policy around key members, key outside members yeah. in the family business, extremely important because if they're accelerating value and they're um, getting operational excellence, achieving that and achieving financial in the business, you got to keep them somehow. Right. People will be, they'll be pursued. Of course. Once you, the family has that relationship and is comfortable with an outsider, you don't want to lose them. So it's, uh, it's, that's a big deal is the outside members in the management team are a big deal as far as compensation goes. I would also say that uh, along those lines, for both from a family perspective and other owners, non-family owners, one of the things that a board can do that's very effective, I think, is develop a good dividend policy or distribution policy, whatever you want to call it, depending on the form of your company, because it becomes a transparent tool. It, generally speaking, it's still at the discretion of the board to declare a dividend or distribution, but having a policy takes some of the argument, potential argument out of the situation. I remember one company that we worked with had a dividend, a very good dividend policy in place. It was a high cash flow company. So they had confidence that they could meet the threshold of their dividend policy, but their dividend policy was basically, they did it four times a year. They made distributions four times a year at the end of every quarter. And their policy was 30% of the earnings of the company in that quarter were distributed every quarter. You know, you can't do that with, with every business. There's wasn't terribly cyclical. Profit was high, cash flow was high, so you gotta you gotta align it with the realities of the business. But I liked the fact that they were right on the mark every time. They kept their promise, I guess I would say, in a way, and they operated as a board. Now, Barry talked about the difficulties of board and the dangers of it. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It just means you should do it well, right? Just do it well. And get outside help if you need it. There are there are advisors who specialize in this area. There's one more point I want to make on your conversation regarding dividend or distributing a certain percentage board needs to be responsible for the other agreements that the company has with family members meaning if a family member specifically if a family if a family owns the business owns the building and is paying rent if you want to have a fair dividend policy pay a fair rent because mm-hmm. oftentimes the rent will be above the market which in effect is a dividend policy that's right Okay, or they may have the boat on the books, or the summer cottage can be on the books. A lot of the families will use you know, the company as their pocketbook and have these other assets. So that, in effect, is a dividend policy. Right. It, but it's a dividend Right. Yeah, you're taking money out of the company at the expense of other shareholders, certainly. Right. Um, so really, it's a holistic approach that needs to be taken. So I come from a family business. I'll be the third generation of ownership in our family business. So we're getting into that rarefied percentage of companies that survive past the second generation, maybe 4%, I think, something like that. So, you know, this company is 63 years old. It's a manufacturing company, small company back in my hometown. And the first transition didn't go very well. It was pretty poorly planned and messy. But we're trying to make some progress towards making sure that doesn't happen 
again, still having, even though this is my expertise, still having difficult conversations about how that will work. We have found, we have formed a family board, which is the first time that's ever happened. And we've had that in existence about three years and it's going okay. I think there are some next steps we need to make, but here's what I would say, because we've talked about a lot of the challenges of family business, like this different bird. And it's so exotic that you have to treat it. We have to hold it in our hands very delicately. I actually think that family businesses have a lot of resilience to them because they're family businesses, because families know each other and if healthy, trust each other. There's a great deal of empathy that is maybe not so present in non-family businesses. So on the one hand, we want folks, it's a little bit of a contradiction, right? On the one hand, we want folks to look at their business through the eyes of an investor as dispassionately as they possibly can. On the other side, we want to cultivate and reward family behaviors that actually are ties that bind, right? That bring people together. So when times get tough, it could go one of two directions. You could be a family that becomes even more dysfunctional or dysfunctional, or you could be a family that leans on the shared values and experiences across generations of the family. And even though you're going to disagree, use that to find a way. I think it's a strength. We have to acknowledge that. It's, family businesses are not easy, but they've got something that a lot of other businesses don't have, and that's family. Well, guys, we've been at this a little while. Is there a topic we failed to, t- I'm sure there's more than one topic we haven't touched on, but for the purposes of today, is there anything that we missed that we wanted to talk about? I think we've hit some good highlights here. There's a lot of, we can get more down into the weeds, certainly a number of different topics, but I think we hit a lot of the high points. I think we want to emphasize too, in all the discussions that we've had, we've tried to make clear and maybe beat the dead horse a little bit that <laughs> Starting early makes a difference. Waiting until the last minute is bad, right? It's going to get in the way of success. So don't work against yourself. It's not going to work out well. Get started with value acceleration and creating transition readiness and working on these issues together. Make that investment. We really encourage it. Whatever that investment looks like, begin today, even if you think a transition is not imminent, even if it's 10 years off, transition-ready businesses are more valuable. That's what we believe because they run better, because they're more disciplined, because they're thinking strategically. So just keep that in mind. Planning of all kinds makes a difference. We know that. It increases the odds of success. Planning goals and congruence, right? That's right. Yeah. John, it's a business, it's a business strategy. It's Absolutely. It's just good business. It's, to good do the business. it's a good, it, it's just good business. And you, well, guys, you never know when somebody's going to knock on that door and offer you some life changing money to buy your business. I think given the commentary, I really appreciate Barry, your time, Sean, your time. Hopefully uh, the listeners, if they get nothing else out of all of this is do something sooner is better than later. And if you don't know what to do, there are resources and the worst mistake you could make is not reaching out because these guys are available and you can reach them by phone or email or on LinkedIn. So again, really appreciate you guys taking the time and uh, we'll call it good from here. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you.